And now, right from the heart of stinking, rotten, sinful Greenwich Village, where evil flows like a great river down to the Hudson. It joins the other fun things. It goes on out to sea. Yeah, you know, you understand if you watch that river long enough what John Lindsay means by this being a fun town. There's always one guy up at the bar. <laughs> he thinks he's in the Tonight Show. He's waiting for Zsa Zsa Gabor. But you know, really, as we, you know, it's Saturday night. Oh, this is a big, this is a big thing, you know, in, in America. Everybody on Saturday night gets the itch. <laughs> there that? <laughs> the sound of a grit. Uh, listen carefully. The sound of a girdle creaking. Oh, yes, it's Saturday night. The people get that thing inside of them, you know. The weekend. The weekend is an American institution. They don't even know about it in France. They really don't, you know. Saturday comes, they do just what they always do. And it's sickening. But Americans, you know, round about Wednesday, they start getting the thing, see. And now it's Thursday, and guys are calling each other up. <laughs> What are you going to do on a weekend, Manny, huh? Where, 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 where you, wah, wah? Oh, come on. Where you, wah, 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 wah? And they start having lunches. And in fact, you know that we've, the weekend has become such a national mania that we've got some guys at the station who do not come in before Tuesday morning. And their weekend starts Wednesday afternoon. <laughs> Oh, yeah, we've got guys who, for two years, have only called in. <laughs> you know, the weekend is getting longer and longer because it's what we live for. Because, you see, a few years ago, like, say, a hundred. <laughs> I'm talking historically, of course, which is the way we all speak, don't we? A few years ago, you know, there used to be this old... You remember this, this, this old fable about the grasshopper? The grasshopper... And, and uh, what was that other thing? The ant. I knew you'd know it. There's always one classical scholar. The grasshopper and the ant, see? And, and you remember the whole thing about the grasshopper and the ant? How all summer, the grasshopper laid around on a beach. He'd spit. Go to the ball game. Chase chicks. Tell dirty stories jump around in the weeds, you know, play his fiddle. Never could figure out why grasshoppers play fiddles. Play his fiddle, and all the while, the ant, what is he doing? He's picking up little pieces of sand, putting them on his back. He's taking little leaves, carrying them. And all the while, he is saying to the grasshopper, you'll be sorry. Boy, when it gets cold, man, you're going to really, oh, don't come around then. And the grasshopper keeps saying, Ah, I am put on this earth to sing, to leap, to play, to fly in the sun with my wings going. And that ant says, Oh, yeah? You just wait till December. And then the moral of it, of course, the snow comes down. And now deep down in the ground, in the little ant hill, the ant is sitting there with his feet up, He's watching TV. He's 
It's warm and cozy there. He's got acorns. Well, that's what they always have in these things. I don't know what the hell they do with acorns. He's got acorns. Don't quibble. He's got acorns around him, you know, and they're all sitting around the fire. The dog is laying there. Well, look, I didn't write this stuff. I mean, this is a classical fable. It's a guy named Aesop, some Greek, you know. He also had these fox jumping up and down eating grapes. I never saw one do that. Foxes hate grapes. All right. And so up there on the surface of the ground, buried up to his little you-know-what in snow, is this poor grasshopper. And you know, the snow is, boy, the wind is blowing him. And he keeps looking around for the ant. And he keeps saying, ant, ant, help me. The snow is up to my you-know-what. And way down deep in the ground, that ant says, well, I can't tell you what he says. You know how ants are, they got a foul mouth. Anyway, he says, gee, I wish I could say it. <laughs> He's so funny, you know. Anyway, the ant says, he says, all right, you know what you did all summer? Okay. All summer I was carrying pieces of wood around, bringing down the acorns. And now it's tough. You'll have to add in that little thing there. There's a blank there. And what happens? The grasshopper slowly is covered up by the snow. And what's the moral to that? Well, like the only moral I can figure is it's held to be a grasshopper. It's great being an ant. But what's happened? You see, my mother would read these things to me, see? That's the kind of stuff that my mother would read. You know, I'm a little kid. I'm sitting down there. I'm hanging out to one knee. My kid brother's hanging on to the other. We would get our wisdom at my mother's knee. She's got her hair up in curlers every night reading to us. She's got these curlers, you know, these aluminum rheostats, <laughs> little things sticking out, you know. And she's reading us about the grasshoppers and the ants. And I thought there was something funny about that. You see, already the generations were changing. She'd say to me, now you see, Jeannie, doesn't that prove to you that it's better to be an ant? <laughs> well, you know, all the ants I ever saw kept getting stepped on. <laughs> you know, we used to step on them and yell and holler and all that stuff. And all the grasshoppers I ever saw were always flying around and chewing tobacco. <laughs> you know, it's not easy to step on a grasshopper. They move. But she says, now, you see, it's better to be... It's better to be an ant. And my mother believed in that. She was an ant. And all summer, she would save acorns for the winter. Yeah, it was terrible. You know, my, my old man would come home, you know. He was definitely a grasshopper. Oh, the old man was a grasshopper in spades. It was terrible, you know. It's awful when a grasshopper marries an ant. Oh, yeah. He would come running into the kitchen... And his coat is falling off, his pants are coming off. He was the kind of guy that the instant he touched the linoleum, he is two-thirds undressed. And by the time he is abreast of the refrigerator, he's down to his BVDs. And my mother, of course, is being very ant-like. She's cleaning stuff and walking around. The old man throws the refrigerator open. 
There's that momentary pause. And then it would come out. No beer! <laughs> My mother failed again. <laughs> By the way, that would make a great commercial. That'd make a really great Valentine commercial. You know, when the whole party comes in and they run into the icebox and instead of finding beer, they find you who. <laughs> Boy, what a letdown. <laughs> I'll tell you. But, but see, that grasshopper and ant thing is very important to what we're talking about today in connection with the world of the hippies. I mean, the whole world that we live in today, that somehow, subtly, all of a sudden, the whole world has been taken over, and we've all become grasshoppers. Have you noticed that? Everywhere you look now, watch me. I, well, I go out once in a while, you know, and I just practice jumping. <laughs> I hop up and down, you know. And in fact, you know, my poor mother, she still doesn't know what's going on. See, once in a while, I call her up on the phone. I say, how are you, Mom? And I can hear her way at the distant end of the line. See, I'm calling from New York. And she says, hello. I say, hi, Mom. You sound just like you're here. My mother is still in that era. Where are you? And I said, New York, Mom. Oh, that's long distance. You better watch your time. I said, oh, it's all right, Ma. You know, I can afford the extra 30 cents. I can say a few extra words. She said, oh, how are you? I said, okay, Ma. And I can hear the water running in the sink in the background. My mother, you know, when she doesn't even have dishes to wash, she just keeps doing it for practice. She keeps washing them over and over again. I hear the sink going in the background, see. I'll say to my mom, hey, mom, why don't you take it easy? Why don't you come out to New York? She said, well, I've got too much work to do. I said, mom, you're an ant. Well, you know what happens to the grasshoppers in the winter? I say, yeah, mom, but the grasshoppers now have got an American Airlines credit card. <laughs> they all go to Miami Beach in the winter. And so all the grasshoppers are sitting around with a blonde next to them. And all the ants are knee-deep in snow. She says, well, you can believe that if you want to. So that's what I believe, Ma. I'm going. Bye. No communication. None whatsoever. But things are changing. The other day I got, maybe you guys don't know that right now, let's see. In just one hour... And 25 minutes, America is about to celebrate a typically American holiday. I received in the mail a big brochure telling me that at midnight tonight, one week of celebration begins. You ready to celebrate? <laughs> Americans always are. Beginning at midnight, national Job Appreciation Week begins. Isn't that a great one? How are you going to celebrate it? <laughs> I, wonder who, I wonder who invented that rotten holiday. I mean, you know, National Job Appreciation Week. How do you want to celebrate it? Go down and quit? <laughs> you know, or, or, uh, or are you going to go out and look for a job? 
You know, what's it going to be? I don't know how to celebrate that one, see? So I thought about this for a while. It says National Job Appreciation Week. Well, now for years, my mother has wondered when I was going to get a job. She doesn't know what I do. Either do I. Either does my boss. But then I don't know what he does either. So, have you ever thought about jobs, though, the whole shtick of jobs? Can you imagine when it first started? You know, man did not have a job in the beginning. I mean, he came out of the ancient primordial mud. He was not yet a plumber. You know, he just had webbed feet. There he is, Charlie, see? Next to him is Og. The two of them. Even then, there was stomach trouble. Because they only ate clams, see? And they can be bad after ice cream, you know. And once in a while, they'd stand there, you know, in the cave. It must have been a great moment. Must have been the turning, the turning instant in history that made man, man, and no longer a beast of the field. Now, nobody has yet seen a bear repair a TV set. That's right. It has never yet been reported that porcupines put their dough in the Bowery Savings Bank. I mean, they just walk around they're porcupines, you know? Well, you never see one of them saying, I've got to get to work. I could quit fooling around, Charlie. Let's go. No, it's only man that has this urge. And it must have happened at one moment. Up to that moment, man was one with nature. Charlie and Ark stood in the opening of their cave. In those days, they didn't even have a sky yet. It was just gray. There were no trees. The two of them just stood and looked. There was nothing to look at. But they looked with fear in their eyes. And the wind blew. And one millennia followed another millennia. And then one day, driven by an urge God only knows what, one day, Og turned to Charlie. Well, it took Charlie over 30 years to react. Reaction time was slow. And he said, which meant, what was that? Repeat it. That took another 30 years. And then, without any explanation, Og slowly moved to the front of the cave and took one rock and put it on top of the other one. He took another rock and set it on top of that one. He became the first laboring man. And Charlie, seeing this nuttiness going on, said, meaning keep it up. He became the first boss.
and things ain't changed since. From that time on, there's been two kinds of guys. Them that does and them that gets done. Now, which are you? It's hard to tell. In fact, I remember the first job. Do you remember the first job you ever had? What? Boy, when it comes to job appreciation, I think of my first job. I was 15, and it was summertime. I'd just gotten out of school, you know, and it's June. All the other guys are going down to play tennis. And I got this urge to get a job. I don't know why, you know, every, I, I, I have questioned it ever since. And where did I go? I went to the A&P <laughs> to get a job. Oh, that would be hard for you to understand. I go down to the A&P, see? All right, come on, kid. You're not very funny. I mean, coming from Jersey, it's not easy, I know. And I go down to the A&P, see? And I, I, there's a thing that says personnel department, and here's about 50 kids all running these machines, you know, the checkout counters. Have you ever, have you ever watched a really good checkout boy at work? This is an art form. You ever feel that the checkout kid is putting you down? And not only that, he is editorializing on what you buy. Kid with the shades, you know, and he keeps going, hmm. Hey, look at this one. Yeah. <laughs> there you are standing in front of all your stuff. <laughs> you want to say, oh, well, I'm sorry about that, but you know, I'm only human, you know. At least, you know, that... Then what's worse, he takes some very embarrassing item and he holds it up. He says, hey, Manny, how much are these? Yeah, they're farming her. And everybody looks. He says, oh, gee. You want to get up and say, we're all flesh and blood. All of us here. Well, I'm a kid, see, and I, the first place I thought it was to go down to the A&P to get a job. Well, I learned something about the supermarket world which I have never forgotten. I go into the personnel man. He's got a white apron, see? Very sharp-looking guy. I walk in. You know, I'm, I'm dressed... Remember when they used to say, whenever you went to get a job, wear your best clothes? Well, I had my electric blue sport coat on. That was my best thing, you know. It had these pads, uh, big pads that hung down, you know. In fact, I'd go in sideways in the doors, you know, that kind of stuff, you know. And, and the pads were made out of horse hair. And each one was drilling into my shoulder blades. And, I, and I've got these points on my collars, you know, the big, big knit tie with about a 17-pound Windsor knot. You know, the kind of Windsor knot hangs there like this, see, and I've got pleats in my pants and the whole bit. My hair's all up like this. I had seven pounds of, of goose grease in my hair. Now I've got to get a job, see? I <laughs> down there all dressed up. I got my coat lit up. It had batteries in the pocket. <laughs> my first job, little did I realize I was beginning life. And I was beginning it. Sadly enough, it was going to foretell the way it was going to be through the whole scene. I walk in. He's down there writing something, see. He says, yeah, I want a job. <laughs> uh, I would like a position. 
How big are you? I said, well, pretty big. Uh-huh. Here, pick up that box over there. I'm all dressed up. And here is a gigantic box of pork and beans. I say, oh, nothing to that. I go, ooh. I can't even move it. He says, come on, get your hands under it. I could feel springs in me. They were going doing. 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 He said, all right, put it up on your shoulder. He said, okay, you'll do. Put it down. Boing, doing. He said, all right, go on back and report to Mac. He's in the back. You know. And out in the front, I see all these kids working these cash registers, looking so cool. It never occurred to me that there were guys that were feeding the monsters. <laughs> Those guys in the back. And I go back in the room there in the back. And here, have you ever been in the back of a, of a supermarket, in the, in the back room, behind the scenes? It's like an airplane hangar. It's like an airplane hangar piled all the way to the ceiling with Campbell's tomato soup. Miles of it. Pickles. All this stuff back there. And in the middle of it all is a gorilla. He's in charge of it. And you see a lot of little bow-legged guys sweating, running around. They're the guys, <laughs> they're the guys, the crowd that I joined with my blue coat on. You know, I had the pleats and all that jazz. And I walk in the back and Max says, Oh, you had a new one, huh? And I knew Clarence wouldn't make it. Busted a gut. Yeah, we had to get him a truss. <laughs> What's that, you know? <laughs> he said, all right. He says, okay, kid, here, here's your, here's your apron. I put the apron on, you know. I felt proud. It was my first uniform. It was a white apron. You've seen those aprons that tie in the back, and it's got a little red thing that says A&P. Every time I go past the A&P today, I can hear in my mind the A&P pep song. Do you know that they sing a pep song there? <laughs> they really do. And during the break, I'll sing it to you. <laughs> it's done, it's got a Gregorian quality to it. Got awful lot of double meanings, but it's a lot of fun, you know. <laughs> so I'm, I'm back there, you know, with a bunch of guys, and, and, and they're, they're sweating, you know, and not saying a word. Not one of them is saying a word. Each one of them is building a pyramid. I'm telling you, it's like all of a sudden finding yourself an Egyptian slave. And you don't know what it's for, you know. And he says, all right, I want you to move. He says, here, you're the new guy. He says, I want you to move all them, all them pork and beans over to that corner. Move all the spaghetti to that corner with the meatballs. Leave the vegetarian spaghetti over there. I said, what the hell, vegetarian spaghetti? I never heard of it. And he says, now look. He said, I want you to take all the pickles this time, move it over this way and put it over here. And here these piles of stuff went seven stories up. So I started at the bottom. I take my first case. I will never forget it. It was a historic moment. My first case of Campbell's tomato soup. 
It was pop art. I didn't realize at that time I was moving $4,000 worth of Da Vinci's. I picked this thing up and you would be surprised what a case of that stuff weighs. I'm telling you, my knees went out sideways. Now, as a kid, I had probably drunk four million gallons of Campbell's tomato soup. And up to that point, it was a warm thing. It was the thing, you know, every day you'd come home from school for lunch. Your mother gives you an American cheese sandwich. <laughs> you know, that whole bit. American cheese sandwich, and she would give you this little bowl of tomato soup. And once in a while, when she was mad at you, she'd give you vegetable soup. <laughs> you know, that's to give you a little <laughs> discipline there. And me and my kid brother would sit there every day. You know, we'd just come home from the Warren G. Harding School. Isn't that a great name for a school? <laughs> Warren G. Harding. What a loser. You should have heard the Warren G. Harding pep saw. <laughs> and we had, this, we had this great big, you should see, uh, in, in our gym, we had this great big coat of arms. It was a teapot, don't, see. <laughs> With all the money coming out of bottom, see. It's an in hoc agricola conch under it. That is not exactly Latin. <laughs> And so every day I would sit there and I would eat this Campbell's, this Campbell's tomato soup. And, and we had different ways of eating it. One way was to take oyster crackers, crunch it all in there until you got a little pile. <laughs> See? And then you could make it into a football. Because soup is essentially boring. As you all know, you make it into a football. See? My kid brother now refused to eat anything. He did not eat for the first seven years of his life. <laughs> Never, no, he was not known to eat anything. And we had several techniques to get stuff down him once in a while. In fact, my old man had this thing he used to do once in a while after about 20 minutes of yelling at the dinner table. He would get up and get his screwdriver. <laughs> Just pry his mouth open. And then my mother would take the plumber's helper. You know? But then there was another technique. <laughs> My kid brother was hung on pigs. He was going through his three little pig stays. My mother would say, play piggy. She says, here's your trough. How does the piggy go? And he would go, wow, it's coming out of his ears. She says, isn't that nice? Look at the little piggy. Wow, 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 wow. Slopping all over him, you know. By the way, he hasn't stopped that. <laughs> He's still playing piggy. <laughs> so I carried my first case. I was a pro now. When you turn professional, it's an important moment in your life. No longer was I an amateur tomato soup man. I was a pro. And that afternoon, Max said this. He got his forces all lined up, me and about seven other guys. And he said, all right, you, you are going to keep the bins out there in the Campbell Soup Department filled. That seems so easy. So easy. You know, you see those bins when you go into the supermarket and they're all filled? There is an, there is an ant that is running on an endless treadmill, carrying these cases back and forth. And by the way, I discovered... Two things sell the quickest, pickles 
and tomato soup. And I discovered another thing. Are you aware that little old ladies sneak into the pickle department in the middle of the afternoon, right after you put the pickles in there, and drink the juice? <laughs> I'm not kidding. I used to catch them at it all the time. I'd say, let go of the juice, ladies. <laughs> That's where the expression came, getting all juiced up. I'm serious. Come on, let's go. Oh, that's it, that's it, all right. All right, all right, that concludes. Oh, uh, take him out, there he goes, he's leaving. That concludes tonight's salute to Richard Nixon. You know, <laughs> he's the first one we've had. Let's give him a hand. Come on, our first heckler. You can just tell he's a, he's a born bowling team captain. There's Babbitt. Now sit down, fella. All right, take care of him. We'll go on with the show. You know, go ahead, take care of him. <laughs> or maybe I will. <laughs> Poor fool. Well, I, you know, it's uh, talk about fears today. You can see the fear shining out of his eyes. Talking about fear today, how many of you saw the commercial? You know, I think commercials are where America shows its true fears. It doesn't come out in the middle of the Chet Huntley, David Brinkley newscasts. By the way, have you ever had that feeling every night at 7 that the world is in good hands? It's in good hands, and they've got it all filmed. <laughs> kind of gives you a warm feeling, you know. Chet comes out every night, and he says, How are you, David? David says, how are you, Chet? And then they go to the news. And have you noticed that David's got that look on the face, you know, this kind of a look, you know. Like as if he knows the real story. He's wise to the whole world. And he ain't telling. On the other hand, Chet's got this official look. You know, he's got the big glasses. And he always fluffs. He always says, in uh, Chicago, in uh, Cleveland today, <clears throat> Brack, Brack, boy. And then they put on the film, and you get a film of Vietnam. And then he always goes, <clears throat> Brack, a uh, little difficulty there. And now David Brinkley in Washington. And somehow you trust Chet, because he fumbles. Somehow fumblers are always trusted. And David has always got this little snide look. And at the end, the two of them get together. If you notice, they never run over. The world is never untidy. It never runs longer than 28 minutes and 40 seconds. And they can cover the whole world. And then David looks over at Chet and says, Well, that's it, Chet. Good night, Chet. <laughs> and he looks. And then Chet looks back and says, Good night, David. Good night, folks. Just once, can you imagine one night, Chet looks over at David, there's a long pause, and he says, David, and David says, yes, Chet. You're getting to be a drag. <laughs> Good night, folks. Instantly, the whole country would be plunged into confusion. 
somehow the world is not in good hands any longer. And so we don't like this. Never does an editorial allow itself to show fear, except in the commercials. Now, what is an American most afraid of today? Bad breath. I'm serious. I, I, I think bad breath. In fact, I heard, I heard a report from Vietnam that many guys go into battle with right guard in their pack. Now, you know, this, this, uh, we're all Americans. We're all in it together, you know. Have you seen this commercial where it shows a guy standing? There's another fear. It shows a guy standing on a hillside. And he's a normal-looking guy. You know, he looks like a clerk. He's got glasses. And he's looking up on the hill, and you, you hear the wind blowing. It's a new commercial. You can hear it sighing. And then you hear this voice saying, Yes, you're afraid. You're afraid of what's going to happen. And he's looking up. And you hear the wind. And the voice says again, You are afraid of what's going to happen. And I'm watching this commercial just tonight. It's a brand new one. And I say, What are they selling? And then suddenly a hand reaches out from limbo and hands him a glass and drops two Alka Seltzers in it. <laughs> and it bubbles up. And he starts drinking the Alka Seltzer. And then he looks up at the hill and you see in the distance an atom bomb explosion. <laughs> she got it! <laughs> and the voice says, yes, when you want to get rid of what's going to happen, take Alka-Seltzer. <laughs> and I suddenly thought to myself, holy smokes, that's a great idea. Can't you see? A red alert. And the radio, you know, that Conrad says, beep, 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 beep. Take evasive action. They're on their way. And everybody grabs the Alka-Seltzer. Everybody says, there I am caught, and I got nothing but X-Lax. They're bombing Washington. Well, these are the fears, you know, and one of the, one of the great commercials, I think, one of the absolute classics, when it talks about things that we fear, the real things. It's one of these beautiful commercials that looks like it was shot for an Ingmar... Bergman movie. You know, there's more money put into commercials today than they ever put into shows. In fact, they'll work months on a commercial. They'll send guys on location to Greenland to shoot 29 seconds of film. And if you try to take a show to Greenland, they'll say, what are you talking about? We ain't got no budget. But the commercial, all the way. And one of the most beautiful commercials I've seen recently is this commercial that's for this, this airlines. You know the one that says, take her along. <laughs> it says, take her along on the next one. And you see this guy on the phone, see, he's on the phone booth. And he says, baby, I'm just sorry, I gotta fly to Cleveland, yeah. Yeah, I gotta go real quick like that. And on the other end of the line, you see her, and she says, but take me along. And he says, no, baby, come on, I gotta go real quick. She said, I've got a credit card. He said, oh, no, no. And the next scene, we see them in an airplane. And there they are, sitting side by side. And they're on their way to his business trip. <laughs> Have you noticed, though, real carefully, they never once said, they never once mentioned the word wife? <laughs> and, you know, it's fascinating. I read now, I understand they got, that this, this airline company 
now has a system where you can charge it and, and you get a rate off on her. How is that for grasshopperism? That's full grasshopper and full blown, you know. And then it shows them flying. And the next scene you see, in the last scene, they've got to the business place. And these two, you can see they're in a discotheque. The lights are shining and they're going like this, you know. And, and the voice says, yes, take her along the next time. I said, gee, things are really changing. They're really great. Like there's this car commercial. You seen this car commercial where it shows this girl. Have you noticed almost all car commercials now show automobiles driven almost exclusively by women? And they've got long blonde hair. Incidentally, have you thought much about the hair thing in commercials? Women are always going like this. And they're always saying, color. And I just wonder how people feel that are watching this thing, see? Yeah, there's a commercial comes on and says, Do, are you really, let's uncover the real you. The real you is a blonde. How's that for George Orwell? <laughs> Little short fat ladies with black hair. The real them is a blonde. If you put this stuff on your hair. And then they've got this commercial that says, and the voice says, is it really true that blondes have more fun? <laughs> and I keep thinking about all these people sitting out there, you know. Here's this, you know, this little lady sitting out there. She's four feet three. Weighs 268. And she's up there on Fordham Road. And there's a little TV set. You know, it's one of those TV sets where the picture's always sideways. You know, and all, all the sound comes in with that buzz on it. Ah. She's got two little rabbit ears that droop. The sink is going doink, 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 doink. And there's a big crack over the refrigerator. And four cockroaches are looking out. And she's watching this girl go... And it says, do blondes really have more fun? How does she answer that? <laughs> you know, no wonder we're all bugged. Because, you know, almost everyone, uh, hardly any of us are tall, thin, rangy, six-foot-nine-inch girls with those buck teeth. Yeah. In fact, I've always wanted, just once, I'd like to see a girl do that. When I could see myself sitting in this restaurant, this girl goes, you stick a celery in her trap. <laughs> By the way, one of my favorite commercials is the one that says, you know, the one that says, when New York women, when their thoughts turn financial, their reaction is chemical. Doesn't that say it about New York chicks? I mean, you know, and it always shows these beautiful girls running around. They've got model cases, you know, and they're walking along. And they're always caught standing like this, wearing leopard skin leotards. Those are real New York women, aren't they, man? Just look around. You can see them all around you, you know, these beautiful women. And, and no wonder people are bugged, because they never showed the real New York woman. 
You know that little short, fat lady? The one that always gets you in the groin when you're trying to get on the bus? She's got seven elbows going on. She's got this net shopping bag full of bones. That little pot on her head, you know. You know that little lady with the mustache and comes in, keeps knocking you down when you try to get a cab. And when her thoughts turn financial, she wants to kill her old man. You never see those people, and yet they're legion. They're out there by the millions. Now, do they think they're a real New York woman when they see the commercial? Or do they think they're a fake? And the only solace they've got is on Saturday afternoons, since they're not a real New York woman, is to go to magnificent Alexander's, <laughs> knock a few people down. <laughs> well, yeah, have you ever been tripped on your way to a cab? You know, oh, yeah, I got knocked down the other day by one of these typical Vogue-type girls. You know, you see, you know, you know, Vogue magazine every couple of weeks has an issue called The New York Woman. And it always shows her, you know, center spread, and she's wearing leather hip boots. You know, this kind, you know, she's absolutely flat. You know, she's wearing a leather jacket that zips up like that, and she's got a bull whip. And you say, gee, what a romantic girl, I... You imagine yourself next to her in your Mustang, you know? She cracks the whip. Here she is, six feet nine, you know, she's got, her hand is usually back here and resting on a Harley Davidson twin four. You know, her hog. You know, she's got studs all over here, you know? It's the only stud you're going to see near her, you know? There she is, you know, and center spread. And out in Cleveland, they're buying this magazine, see. They're living out there, you know, where, you know, where women still, you know, well, you know. You know, they walk around. You know how women walk, see. They're still doing it out there, see. And they keep reading this, see. They say, gee, that's the way the New York women are. And they're the real women. Holy smokes. If I could only get to New York. If I could only get there. And then they get bucked. And 20 minutes later, you see them coming off the bus. Over here, they're coming off the bus down on 23rd Street. They get out, they look around. And five minutes later, they're in the line at Rockefeller Center to see Johnny Carson. And that's the surrealistic world that we live in. And by the way, have you noticed that, that, that all of all women magazines, without exception, you'll find that all male magazines, male magazines, are about women. And without exception, all women magazines are about women. Which tells you one of the classic differences in the sexes. And so every month, Playboy comes. And out comes that centerfold dot. There she is, Jim. She's always in a shower. It always says, Miss January, your playmate for January, Barbie, Barbie. <laughs> and she's a student of slum clearance at NYU. 
she reads Kierkegaard and Kant. There she's looking out of the shower with that stupid look, you know. The water's dripping out of her ears. And 98 million guys say, oh, boy, wow, that's what I like, the intellectual type. <laughs> oh, man, did you see that one this month, Chris? Oh, wow. And then they throw away Miss December. She doesn't make it, see. Miss January goes up. Millions of guys out there are doing that every month. Can you imagine how it would be if Vogue had a center fold out? Can't you just see it? There it is. Blah! His shirt's ripped off. It says, your playmate for this month, Charlie Applerot. Hair on his chest, you know. Drives a truck for the A&P. His hobby is dirty books. <laughs> Don't hold your breath. <laughs> oh, yeah, these are the fears, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah, they sneak through. In fact, I've often wondered, it's always been a little source to me somehow, a little poignancy to think. You know, I, I, because I come from the Midwest. And out there in the Midwest, they don't have real women like we know them. I mean, you know, they got people like, oh, Esther Jane, you know, and they've got these, yeah, they wear these Montgomery Ward Toreadors. But nothing wrong with Montgomery Ward. I especially like Mr. Ward. It's very nice. They have a very nice plumbing section. And, and I think, I think, I think about Saturday night. Saturday night. Here we are. We're in the village. You know, we don't realize how lucky we are. Saturday night in New Jerusalem, Indiana. Well, let me tell you, this, this is enough to make a man take all kinds of pledges. I've been in New Jerusalem on Saturday night in Indiana. Now, maybe you don't know, friends, that the turnpike, the Indiana turnpike, does not stop in Indiana. Just goes right over. They don't even have an exit. Nobody goes to Indiana. To get out of Indiana, you've got to go to Ohio to get on the turnpike and on a Saturday night. Right this minute, friends, this very instant, there are guys in New Jerusalem, Indiana, standing in front of George's Balding Alley on US 41, doing the big Saturday night thing. They're watching the turnpike. Yeah, you stand there and you see all those cars going to New York. They're going east. And then you see another crowd. Wing. They're going west. And once about every three weeks, one of them will get enough scratch together to buy a couple of gallons of gas for the olds. And they'll get up on the turnpike themselves. But in Indiana, turnpiking is a sport in itself. You don't go anywhere. You just get on the turnpike. And a big Saturday night is to go three interchanges. You drive along one of the great moments, you know, in Indiana, on the turnpike, is to drive along, and you see this green and white sign, and it says, Los Angeles, 2,932 miles. 
Somehow you feel warm. You're on the way, see? And then you go two more interchanges, and you go to the Howard Johnson. Let us pause for a moment tonight and think of those souls out there whose biggest point of the week is to go to the Howard Johnson. Not past it, but to it. It's the biggest moment. And they'll argue for hours over what flavor ice cream they're going to get and talk about it for weeks afterwards. Then they get in the car and go east. And then they pass that other sign. The one that says, New York, 1,076. And they're out there in nowhere. Right in the middle of it. Right there in that great black void. How many of you have ever flown in an airplane from New York to Chicago? Well, Indiana is just about where you're starting to get sick on your meal. <laughs> you know, when you're just getting a little tired of it and you, you, you look out of the window and you see that blackness. And there's a couple of little white lights. Well, out there, they're getting Vogue magazine. And they're reading about the New York woman. And they're cursing the day that they were born in New Jerusalem. And they're watching the commercials. Those commercials, you know the ones that say, Cougar. Have you seen those Cougar commercials? The animal. Ah! Ah! What a car! And that animal stands and he goes, ah! And have you seen the guys that buy them? They ain't cougars. <laughs> Large numbers of dental assistants with very small chins. And they've got these cars that got claws on them. Ah! And that's all part of the sublimation. What? In fact, you know, one of the biggest shows in town is to go up along 57th Street. I saw a great moment here about a month ago. 57th Street. It's right off 5th Avenue. And I see a crowd of people, see, and they're all standing around. I said, what's the matter? Fight, you know? Go over there. And there is a magnificent Bentley. I mean, you know the kind of Bentley that stretches for about 70 feet, see? And it's got a sliding roof. It's got suede upholstery. And these two guys from the sanitation department, <laughs> they were backing up, you know. And boy, you know, the crowd was applauding. Let's go. You know, they were backing up. And one guy says, all right, man, here, put the hook on it. And there it was right by Tiffany's. And they hooked the thing up and it went, oh. And he put it in gear, it went up, and it jerked forward, and you could hear the grill go crunch. And the crowd roared. <laughs> you know, I said, gee, you know, we're always for the underdog. And I could just see this lady, you know, coming out with her chauffeur out of Tiffany's. And she's got a shopping bag. By the way, are you aware that the Tiffany's gives you a shopping bag? <laughs> I mean, how is that for an affluent society? Yeah, yeah, I, I just like the idea of going into Tiffany's and they've got push carts. <laughs> you get to the end, they say, well, would you like a shopping bag for all of it? You know, a little shopping bag, you walk out. In fact, well, you see so many great sights in New York. I saw one, which I will always remember, 
And it was at, right at Tiffany's. Now, I'll just tell you this. It, it happened right in front of Tiffany's, and I've told this story before. And the people who see it don't believe it. It's the truth. I was walking down the street one day, and I see, pulled up by Tiffany's, the first time I've ever seen anything like this. Are you aware that Rolls-Royce makes a station wagon? <laughs> I'm in a station wagon. And there it is, bronze and gold, the Rolls-Royce station wagon, see? And on the side, it had in little gold letters, you know how they always have the name of the car, like Cougar or Mustang? On the side, it said, Pioneer. I like the idea of a Rolls Pioneer. And I'm standing there looking at this Rolls Royce, you see, and it's a station wagon. It's for roughing it, you know. <laughs> After all, that's what a station wagon's for, you know. And I said, I wonder what kind of rugged character. I mean, has a Rolls station wagon. I waited around, a couple other bums are standing there waiting, you know. <laughs> they were both standing. Once in a while a guy comes along and says, move along there. <laughs> when you go past Tiffany, do you ever get that, that urge to throw a brick? <laughs> you know, that terrible urge, you know. I think, I think deep down inside of us there is a latent crook in every one of us. In fact, I, 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 I never have gotten over that feeling of going into the bank you walk in, and there's this guard standing there. You've been coming in there since you were 12. You walk in. You take out your poor little checkbook. You know, you're going to write a deposit for $13.12. You write it out, and he's watching you. And then you go over to the counter, and there is the teller back there who's known you forever. And he says, and then he goes over and makes that crummy phone call. You know that one that he goes like this. Yeah. Yeah, he's sweating, yeah. Uh-huh. All right, do you think it's okay? All right. You're standing here, look, you got my money. It's my money, you got it, you know. Then he gives you $13.26. You take it. <laughs> you try to make small talk, like, nice day, isn't it? <laughs> it's raining like hell out, you know. This is, the, this is the latent fear that we all have of being discovered. I have a feeling that any one of us walking along Fifth Avenue, if a guy walked up behind us, put his arm on our shoulder and said, okay, it's all up. He'd say, all right, I'll go. Don't worry. Okay. You know, this is right out of Kafka. Well, one time, you know, you want to hear an army story connected with fear. I'll tell you, I don't know of any, any experience that you have in real life that comes close to the kind of fears that you have in the army. And by the way, none of the fears are rare. In fact, very few of the fears are connected with what we call, you know, the war, that kind of stuff. They're connected with other subtler things. I remember one of the great fearful moments that I lived through one time in the army.
You want to hear an army story? Yeah. Oh, I'll tell you. You know, I'll tell you, uh, 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 to give you a, a kind of a, a little a postscript on army stories, every time I tell an army story, I get about a thousand letters from GIs. Because apparently a lot of GIs are confined to quarters on a Saturday night. And these guys are sitting out there listening in Greenland. They're listening in Post down in Georgia. And are sitting in these barracks sweating it out. And I remember myself one night in a barracks. Here we're sitting. It's a typical nothing night in the Army. Nothing has happened today. I mean, years go by in the Army, and nothing happens. This is just one of those routine nights, the kind of night you never see in combat. You know the, you know the TV series? This is real Army. I'm sitting there in my shorts, GI shorts. Dog tags, sweating. Next, on the next book, Gasser is laying stretched out. He's just looking at his feet. Oh, yeah, he looked at his feet for three years. He kept nodding. I never had the heart to ask him what he saw. I mean, we all had our little thing going. And down at the end of the barracks, you could smell, you could smell the butt cans. We had these little butt cans, you know. And they were made out of, out of pineapple cans. You know, the big cans, pineapple juice comes in. And they were left over from the Boer War. Yeah, you could smell cigar butts that had been smoked during Teddy Roosevelt's day. And so that's the smell of the barracks. You could smell the canteens moldering away. You could smell the fatigues. Each guy has his own smell in his fatigues. Yeah, three weeks would go by. You didn't get them back from the laundry. And now they begin to sprout twigs. I, I had a pair, by the way, that had moss on the, on the shoulders. And so we're sitting there one night, little realizing we're about to get one of those great moments that come in the Army that guys write novels about. We're just sitting there. Edwards is across the barracks polishing his belt. He was a belt man. Some guys spent their entire time in the army just polishing. You know, it's like a prayer wheel. Just keeps your mind going. And there was always one guy, a gray man, down at the other end of the barracks, who wrote an eternal letter. He was always hunched over, sitting on his footlocker. He'd talk, you know. His mouth would move when he wrote. We never knew who he was. He was just that gray guy in Company K that stood at the end of the chow lines. We'd line up every day, and there would be certain of us who were known, like Gasser, me, Edwards, Zinsmeister, Sergeant Kowalski. Kowalski, I'll never forget the day Kowalski was issued the new rubber truncheons. We're all standing in chow line. He's walking up and down watching us. We're waiting, moving up one inch by one inch into the chow hall where the SOS is cooking. I mean, there's never any excitement in the Army. What's for dinner, Sarge? We knew. 
You know, it was always going to be SOS, Beats. The Army has a thing on Beats, friends. Beats, and they had this raisin jello. It was always melted. And they had some kind of a purple Kool-Aid. Makes a great combination, you know. It's one of those, you know, those quick combinations you read in these little recipe books, a quick surprise dinner. But so we're waiting in line one day, and I'll never forget this gasser is now up on the top of the porch going into the chow hall. And he looks down over the line, and he peers in into the screen, see, and he takes a big sniff. He goes, ah. He looks down, and he says, guess what's for dinner, fellas? And the whole crowd hollered, S-O-S, in one big bellow. And the first sergeant walked past. At ease. That is chipped cream beef. M2. It will heretofore and henceforth be referred to as cream chipped beef. And there was a whisper. It was Edwards. He says, no matter what you call it, it's SOS. <laughs> Reminded me of that Thurber cartoon. <laughs> And so that's the way the army went. And so one night, I'm sitting in the barracks, and this is when the fear developed. The awful moment. Sitting in the barracks. Nothing's happening. And all of a sudden, the speaker in the corner went on. You know the squawk box? You hear uh, that hum. Everybody instinctively. You know, it's like right out of Kafka. Everybody moves back. The squawk box. That unseen voice. And you hear, Shepard, come to the orderly room right now on a double. It's 8 o'clock. What did I do? And Gasser sits back. <laughs> Takes his foot. You know, we all love the other guy's trouble. And Gasser takes his foot and he wiggles it a little bit. He says, say hello to the sergeant for me. I said, okay. I get up and I put on my pants. I put my coat on. Over nothing. Dog tags are hanging. I got one shoe on. So I go down the duck boards. And now I arrive in front of the orderly room. The orderly room, in case you don't know what it is, is the office of a company. I walk in. And there sitting is the sergeant. He looks up. Mr. Shepard? I said, yes. The CO wants to see you. The CO wants to see me. The CO didn't even know I was alive. In fact, the CO never even talked to our company. He was, once in a while, he would come out every three months. He'd come out, he was always a little drunk. You see, he was a, he was a West Point man. He was a captain. And he, he would sit in his little office and dream dreams of being Eisenhower. And what had he got? Company K. So I go in to see him, and I says, yes, sir. Shepard reporting. And he's got papers in front of him. See? And he's just sitting there looking. 
Are you sure you're a shepherd? Yes, sir. It says on the dog tag. Yes, sir. Long pregnant pause. And I was expecting a male fist to come out of the cloud. I didn't know what was happening. My gut is going, you know. This is the, this is the commanding officer standing like this. He says, Shepard? Do you know a Major Abramowitz? I didn't even know there were Majors in the Signal Corps. All we had were Corporals, First Sergeants. I said, no, sir. He said, well, Major Abramowitz, I have here from the regimental headquarters. Are you sure you don't know this guy? Major Abramowitz has recommended you. Recommended me? He's recommended you to go to OCS. Do you know what OCS is? Officers Candidate School. I, the biggest moment that I ever had in the Army, I had once made PFC a year and a half before. Three days later, I was busted. I can't believe it. I said, I'm recommended for OCS, sir. He says, yeah, I can't understand it. Well, very good soldier, sir. Well, I don't know what to do. He said, shall I sign it? What do you say? I said, I'll think about it. <laughs> I'll think about it. I go back out of, the, out of the orderly room and go down to the barracks. I come in. I said, Gasser, they want me to be a second lieutenant. Gasser looks at me and says, Fink. <laughs> he says, Fink. I said, I can't understand it. And Edwards, who had been applying for OCS since he was three years old, and they never even once said anything to him, he stood up and he looked, you know, his belt buckle fell to the floor. He says, they're sending you to OCS? And then he used a phrase which I cannot use on the radio to describe what kind of a soldier I was. He says, you, the biggest up in the whole outfit? I says, I don't know about that, Edwards. You know, right now the pride of my soldierliness is beginning to come out. I straighten up my fatigue, you know. I start straightening up my footlocker. You know, I got my collar straightened out. I says, I don't know about that. And the whole barracks changed. The guy down at the end stopped writing letters. Shepard's going to make it. Walking around, I said... I got friends in regimental headquarters. Yeah, old Jack Abramowitz. I said, who? who, who who's sending you? I said, regimental headquarters, fellas. They must have seen me in chow line. <laughs> they must have seen me one day when I was on pots and pans. I mean, after all, you can't hold a good guy down all the time. And ain't nobody ever plucked chickens like I plucked. 
Listen, I plucked over 250 chickens one time down in a consolidated mess. They probably heard of that. You know, all the little things that I had done good in the Army came back. Do you remember the time I was on garbage detail? They'd probably seen the way I flung them cans around. I don't want no smart talk around here. And all the guys are looking. And for that moment, you know, I could see myself writing to my mother. Well, Mom, I'm writing to you now from Officer's Candidate School. In just 90 days, I will be Lieutenant Shepard. Then I thought of the uniforms. That's the first thing you think of. You see, the suit that I had, well, it's hard to describe it. It was made out of horse blanket. Yeah, the suit that we had, you know, and everything bulged out, hung down, the collars rolled up. Had this coat, you know, that stuck out in the back and grabbed me by the back of the neck. I had shoes that weighed eight pounds apiece, you know, walking around, and my underwear was made out of burlap. And you always would see in the distance officers going out on the weekend wearing pink pants. Yeah, they had these green coats big hats with birds all over them. And somehow they lived an exalted life. We'd go past, I remember going past the BOQ. That's the bachelor's officer's quarters. We'd look up there, see. And we could see that these guys, they had their own rooms. Each one had his own locker. We'd look in. They're always walking around with little silver things and gold things. And me and Gasser, Edwards are sitting in the dirt, wearing our fatigues, our tin hat. I never once saw a second lieutenant on the grease trap. He knows. <laughs> it was just us. But I was going to be one of them now. And that excitement, that exhilaration, I could see myself ordering my uniform. And they're measuring me. I'm down... I'm down at the PX, you know, and I'm standing in front of the mirror. I'm saying, no, I think I'll have the short camel hair coat. I want the one with the, uh, with the cloth bars. I like that kind. Little patch. I saw that. What a feeling. I went to bed that night. It was the happiest night I ever had in the Army. I'm lying in my sack. And next to me is Gasser. And as he falls asleep, Gasser starts to mutter. He always muttered in his sleep. And you know, in the Army, they put you foot to head. You know that thing? And so I'm down there by Gasser's feet. And I can hear Gasser from up there at the head of his bed. And when he would fall asleep, he would use only one word. Over and over again with fantastic variations. It was like a Bach fugue. And I'm lying there, and I would hear Edwards down at the other end of the barracks. When Edwards fell asleep, he would start to whimper. When I would fall asleep, I'd lie there, and I'd look up into the ceiling, see? It's night. This is the only time you own as a yard bird. And the cover holds you down tight. You know that I went through one whole year without making my bed? That's a G.I. working. 
That's a working GI, you know. And yeah, you, you learn, you know, you learn because every morning you got to get up, you see, and you're supposed to make your bed, you know, with the square hospital corners, and you pull it tight, you know, the hospital corner, and you pull it. Then you're supposed to take a quarter and drop it, and it bounces, and you catch it. That's a bed. Well, you make it like that for the first week, and you realize it takes you 40 minutes to do it. I mean, you miss breakfast and the whole bit. So you learn to sleep absolutely petrified. <laughs> it's discipline, see? It's kind of a yogi. <laughs> you don't mess your bed. You lay there, see? And then when you get up in the morning, you don't get up like, an, you know, like a real person, you know, gets up. You know, kicking the bed and all that. You're, you're, you're like this, see? You're lying, it's like an envelope. It's clamped it down. You reach up and grab behind you and you slowly pull yourself up. You edge yourself out of your bed and then you jump down. Then you just go, oonk. That is true. Thank you. I mean, for any of you guys that are going in, these are little tricks you'll want to know. I mean, they save a lot of trouble. And then there's another one, if you want to know another little trick. You know, they've got the Foot Locker. Well, now, the Foot Locker is one of the major sources of hell for a yard bird. Now, the Foot Locker is this trunk, see? And it's got a tray on the top of it. Now, there is a thing called the Field Manual of Standard Infantry Regulations. It's very racy reading. <laughs> one of my favorite books. And, uh... Oh, it's great. Their, their, their chapter on right face is beautiful. Very exciting. It says, I remember the opening line. It says, all soldiers have two, and then in parentheses, two feet. More or less. <laughs> and over here is your footlocker. See, now, if you don't know what the footlocker is, it's where you're supposed to keep all the junk that the army gives you when you come in. Now, you don't hear about, you, you always hear about the guy getting the, the uniform and the hat. Well, are you aware that they give you one comb? They give you a comb. It's the worst comb in the world. Yeah, this comb is made out of pins. And it's a little plastic comb. They give you this comb, and they give you a razor, a plastic razor with cardboard blades. Yeah, they're GI blades. Yeah, this is the stuff they give you. They give you a little soap dish, little black soap dish. They give you a belt. They give you extra socks, all this stuff. Now, in the infantry regulations, they've got a diagram. It's like this, see? And each thing is placed in the footlocker in precise position. The socks are rolled in a roll one and one-half inches in diameter by two inches. And they better be that. They are placed at the upper left-hand corner of the tray one quarter of an inch in from the edge, like so. Your toothbrush is at a slight diagonal, which will measure one and two-thirds inches from the top, three-quarters inches from the bottom, and all the way through. How can you do this? Well, I'll tell you what you do. All the stuff you get given to you, you glue in your footlocker. <laughs> I'm not kidding. You glue your socks in. <laughs> your underwear's all folded. It's glued all in there, see? And then you lock the son of a gun. You never open it. 
And when they have, when they have their inspections, you go proudly over there and you open your footlocker and you swing it open and there it is. Now, where is your real stuff? Well, you go down and you buy all other stuff like socks, underwear, toothbrush, and you throw it in a sack. That's called your barracks bag. And it's all mixed up with broken cookies. It's mixed up with broken cookies, old letters, and stuff you'd rather not see. It's all on the bottom. You just reach in every day, grab a sock, you know, one white, one, one brown one, you get up. Over here is this beautiful thing. So you see, I'm a real working GI, and it's been years, you know, I've been working my way up and down, and, and now I am going to OCS. All of that is over. I'm going to live like a gentleman, and I'm going to be, you know, and that was another thing. Every guy knows that in his neighborhood there were three guys that four months after they got in the Army were majors. I remember Jack Morton. My mother would write, Jack Morton is now a colonel. He was 14. <laughs> he was the little skinny guy that nobody ever picked when we played ball. How come he's a lieutenant colonel? And I'd say, well, you see, I'm very important in my position. And that actually, a PFC in the Signal Corps has a very high status. I mean, after all, somebody has to know how to clean grease traps. Well, now I'm going to escape. I felt great. Next day in mess, you know, I'm sitting down. There's the jello. It's all melted in with the ice cream. But I'm shoveling it in with a different feeling. That feeling that this too shall pass. And tomorrow, it's going to be the officer's club. You know, where they drink martinis. They got flowers on the thing there. I'm sitting there, gas. Everybody's looking at me very different. Very different scenes. And I'm waiting to be sent to OCS. Three days go by. I'm sitting in the barracks one night. And I want to tell you, friends, this is a tragic story. Are you prepared for tragedy? I'm sitting in the barracks. Gasser's in the bunk next to me, picking his toes. Edwards is over there now, and he's working on his fourth belt buckle. The letter is being written. And I'm looking at the Brooks Brothers uniform catalog. You know, I'm looking at the page where it says dress uniforms. Are you aware that second lieutenants have uniforms that have blue pants, gold epaulets, and a sword? I like the idea of a sword. When I could see myself going into the USO with a sword, you know? <laughs> Boy, that would take care of that chick in there, you know? You know, walk in with a sword, with a blue hat and all that, with a cape. You know, they've got a cape, see? With... Yeah, since I was in the Signal Corps, the cape is blue on the outside and has orange silk lining. Oh, boy. <laughs> Lieutenant Shepard, cape swinging, you know? I always saw myself, too, as saying, follow me, you know, and all of us rushed forward with our soldering irons. I was in a mess kit repair battalion, see? <laughs> well, it was an airborne mess kit repair battalion. Smart, yeah. The 
dynamic. I was in a handle platoon. That's the toughest. <laughs> what does the Army travel on, huh? All right. I'm sitting in the barracks there. All of a sudden, this thing goes... <clears throat> Shepard, come into the orderly room on the double, Mac. That was no OCS voice. I jump up. I run in. I walk in. The sergeant says, forget it. Forget what? He says, the CO wants to see you. I walk in. The CO's got a piece of paper. Well, PFC, Shepard. I can hear it in the air. So, sorry to tell you that uh, Major Abramowitz made a mistake. It was Company M. There's another shepherd. He says, not me. He says, no, not you. He says, by the way, to nothing better than a little work, he says, why don't you get out of the mess hall? Put in a little work on the...